Heavenly Father, we give you praise and worship you for your greatness, your power, your might, your beauty, your uh, eternal characteristics. Father, thank you that you are wise, that you are sovereign. Father, I also give you thanks, give you praise because you are, are loving. Amen. So we have one church this morning, which means there's not a Sunday school class for your children. So I have a, uh, a message for school-age children. So come on up front if you are a school-age child or an easily distracted adult, either one. That's a joke. Don't come up here if you're over 40. Come on up, kids. Okay, children. So, kids, this morning I'm going to be preaching from, uh, one place where I'm preaching is from the book of James. And James, I really like that part of the Bible because James uses a lot of, uh, of pictures in what he's writing. He talks about things in real life. And one of the things that James talks about is a horse. I'm going to explain why in just a second, but I'm curious. If any of you like stood up close next to a horse, raise your hand if you've been up close next to a horse. Okay, uh, several of you, that's cool. When I was a little boy, we had a horse for a little while, and I want you to answer this question. Do you think horses are strong or are horses weak? They're strong. Are horses big or are they little? Okay. So horses are big, horses are strong. Now, here's why James talks about horses. He, uh, he's talking about, in part of the book of James, about what we say. And what he says about the words that we say, uh, our mouths, our tongues are little. What do you think is more powerful, my muscles or my words? That one's kind of tricky, right? I. But what James says is that your words are more powerful than like your muscles or your whole body. He says, if you say selfish things with your, your mouth or your tongue, that your whole life, your whole person, your whole body will be selfish. Or if you say angry words, that your whole body will be angry. And he says that your tongue, your words are like a bit in the mouth of a horse. Now, I don't know if you know what a bit is. This is not a bit. This is a chopstick. I just grabbed a chopstick out of my kitchen, but I think it will work the same way. Uh, a bit is something that you put into the mouth of a horse, like this. Ah, it goes back into the mouth of the horse. Like, ah. And if you're riding on a horse and you pull back on the reins, it pulls that bit and the horse will stop. Or even maybe someone small, like a child, if you turn the reins on the bit of that horse to the left, a big, strong horse will go to the left. Or if you turn the bit to the right with those reins, a big, strong horse will turn to the right. So this idea of a bit in the mouth of a strong horse, James says, our words have control over all of the rest of our body. So here's what I want us to do. Even as a grown-up, sometimes my words control the rest of myself, the rest of my body. If I say things that are angry, 
my whole self, my whole body is angry, and it's hard. Do any of you sometimes say things that are mean, even though you don't mean to, or you say things that are selfish, or you say things that are angry? It's a hard thing to control, and James says it's hard to us to control our words. I'm going to pray for us that we would all, children and adults alike, that we would let God be in control of our words, that we would let God be in control of the bit in the mouths of horses of our life, okay? Let me pray for us. God, I pray that for these children and for us as adults that you would control the words of our mouths, that we would not try to to get our words right all the time because we'll make mistakes, but God, we surrender our mouths, our words to your control. Amen. All right, thank you guys. If you get bored later, draw a picture of a horse, okay? Grown-ups, you too. I would like for us to start with a little science experiment. I need you to, in your bulletin, to get out this little uh, piece of paper. This is blue, blue piece of paper. Have a little survey for you, and what I need for you to do is not just read it and, and look at it, but I need you to circle with a pen, with a piece, uh, a pencil, a pen, a marker, something, to circle one of these answers that applies best to you. If you need a pen, I grabbed a, a drawer of pens. I can throw one at you. I can't guarantee that I will not put your eye out, but if you need a pen, I've got a pen, I need you to circle your answer. Don't put your name on it. Keep it anonymous. But I need you to answer going into 2020. Number one, I'm going into 2020 optimistic that I can see good things on the horizon. Option two, I'm going into 2020 in distress. I am concerned about the difficulty that I see on the horizon. Or option three, I'm going into 2020 with a mix of both optimism and distress. Now, every good quiz is going to be followed up with, uh, you know, the, the grading period. So here's what I need you to do. Circle your option. Don't put your name, but circle your option. Fold it in half. And I need you to trade, exchange your piece of paper with someone sitting next to you. Okay? Go ahead and make the exchange. This is really just a test to see if any of you had pins. You were planning to take copious notes in my sermon. And I'm watching to see how many blank answers there are out there. Now exchange again a second time. Keep it completely anonymous. Trade with somebody else. Go ahead and pass it on to somebody else. Our margin for error might be like, I don't know, not 3%, 30%. We'll see. Now one more time just to make sure that you have a total stranger traded again. So in theory, we are each holding a completely anonymous answer about the attitudes of the other people in our church going into 2020, right? Okay. Here's the time for our, our testing. I want everyone who has, op open your paper and take a look at this stranger's answer. Somebody three steps ago. And if you have a piece of paper that says, someone circled number one, I'm going into 2020 optimistic. I can see good things on the horizon. Stand up. Okay, so here, this represents 
the optimistic folks going into 2020. I don't know, would you say that's like a quarter of the room? Something like that. I'll call it 25%. Okay, thank you, number ones. If you have a piece of paper that has number two, I'm going into 2020 in distress. I'm concerned about the difficulty I see in the horizon. Stand up. Interesting. What's that, four people? Okay. All right. So the second half of my sermon is for only four people. <laughs> and me, five. Uh, what about uh, the third one? Everybody who has number three circled, stand up. Oh, okay, there's where the meat of this survey is at. Good. So there's a, a lot of us who have some measure of optimism and distress going into 2020. Thank you. If you have a piece of paper with nothing circled, someone four, uh, four exchanges ago was a rebel and circled nothing. Well, let me uh, tell you why this is on my mind, why this sermon is on my heart when it comes to uh, distress. Uh, you'll note, I did not put pessimism as the answer there, but I think distress is a, a good way to think about this. Um, I know for myself, I have several personal fears and concerns that have been swirling around in my mind uh, for the last few months. And if I'm completely honest, there have been many times in recent weeks when I have not been able to, to sing the praises of God that speak about His goodness. Because internally, I, I find myself wrestling with the reality that God is good. So there's a, a big part of me going into 2020 that is connected to this idea of, of distress, of, of difficulty, just the, the things it would be easy for me to head into a new year in distress. Now, one of the ways that I sometimes in an unhealthy way respond to times of distress or uh, when I go into a, a new year or a new semester working with college students, I can take on the attitude of, of a false optimism. There's a temptation for me in dealing with distress that I will, will declare for myself I'm going to win in 2020. I'm going to, to conquer a new semester, a new year. Let me give you a little glimpse of what that might sound like and just kind of my internal thinking. I find myself thinking thoughts like this. I will win because I will be in the next year smarter, stronger, more organized. I will get up early and I'll stay up late. I will eat less junk food and eat more vegetables. I will watch less Netflix and read more books. I will spend less money and make more money. I will be a better version of me and I'll look good doing it. And God will love me because I'm so good at it all in the next year. That's how my thinking sometimes goes. And if I keep going, I'll sound like a health and wealth prosperity preacher. If, if I can conquer the new year, God will give me his seal of approval. I think that's a really unhealthy thing that I can sometimes do going into a new year. So I'm faced with these two options that I know I frequently default to. Letting the difficulty of my life, the distress of my life, lead me to a place where I live in fear, or trying to conquer that fear or conquer a new year 
pulling up the bootstraps and trusting that I will do it better in the next season, in the next year. And I don't think either one of those are healthy options. Perhaps some of you can relate to that. Um, And here's what I want us to see this morning. I want to see a different perspective from God's word. Going into a new year, I believe that God's word provides counsel for us, whether we're optimistic or distressed. And here's what I believe we'll find to be true in scripture this morning. Our hope cannot be in human endeavor. Yet we have great reasons to hope because our God is full of love, he is wise, and he is sovereign. So this morning I want to essentially preach two small sermons, one from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. That'll provide us some perspective as we make big plans for the new year. Then I want us to move over to Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, I believe, will give us many reasons for hope. So let's begin in James chapter 4 verses 13 through 15, where I believe we'll see that it is God who governs the plans for our new year. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 say this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I'd like to begin by laying out what this passage does not say. A couple of things that it does not say, so that we're not confused. It is not saying, optimists, bring it down a couple notches. That's not what James is saying. Some of us See uh, Jason Hubner, some of you, some of us tend towards a more downbeat personality. We might want you optimists to turn it down a notch, but that's not what James is saying. I would never want to accidentally preach a sermon that communicated optimists come down and those who are in distress put on a smiley face and we'll all meet in the middle. Because that doesn't last but maybe a few moments. There's no real truth or a grounding in that. I think sermons should be simply an attempt um, to turn us towards God's perspective, turn us towards the perspective of Scripture. And James is not saying, turn it down a couple of notches, optimists. Second thing that James is not saying, he is not saying that it is bad to make a profit. The New Testament church was composed of both the poor and the rich. In chapter 2 of uh, the book of James, James teaches that in the church there should be equality between a person wearing fine clothing and gold jewelry and a person wearing filthy old clothing. So the assumption is, as James teaches the church that, that he's looking around the church gathered and there are both the rich and the poor. Scripture does not condemn the poor man for being poor. Scripture does not condemn a man for carrying on business and making a profit. So James is not saying, don't go and make a plan and make a profit. Third thing that this passage does not say, it doesn't say, don't make plans. Scripture says just the opposite. Scripture says, be wise, make plans for the future. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says, look at the ant, you sluggard. Isn't that a great word? I think that's a great Bible word. Look at the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. 
It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It says, the Proverbs say, make wise plans for your life. So James is not saying, don't be optimistic. He's not saying, don't make a profit. And he's not saying, don't make plans. There's wisdom in doing work, making plans for the season of life. I remember distinctly in college, um, a friend of mine named Jeff. Jeff and I were on the leadership team for Christian Challenge uh, when I was in college. And Jeff was a new believer. He was a great personality. He came to God's Word with the the eyes of a a new Christian, and someone had shown him this passage in James. And so we're sitting around making plans for the next semester, and someone would say, well, we didn't do an outreach event last semester. We should plan an outreach event for the next semester. And Jeff would say, wait, we shouldn't say, let's plan an outreach event. We should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do an outreach event. And as kind of an obnoxious, crusty, older Christian, I would get frustrated and say, Jeff, we can't live life like, if the Lord wills, we'll eat lunch after this meeting. You know, that is the way I kind of was thinking about it. Now, Jeff's perspective was fine. He was a really genuine, really great uh, person. And he's just looking at Scripture at face value. But what James isn't saying is to be afraid of plans or don't make plans. He's saying something else altogether. We can make straightforward plans without fear that our plans are outside of God's will. So that's what the the passage is not saying. Let's look at what it is saying. What the passage is saying, the first thing that I would say is guard against pride and human accomplishment. Verse 13, look back at that. It says, now listen, you who say, I'm going to go to this city and make these plans, make a profit. You can kind of imagine the character, this imaginary literary character that James is referring to. He shows up and he says, I've got a a plan that's guaranteed to make big money. I'm going to go to the big city. I'm going to pull the trigger on my awesome plan and it's going to go great. And let me tell you about it. Now listen, you who say about what you're going to do. The imagined speaker is operating under the false belief that the future is secured in human effort. The context of chapter 4, before we get to verses 13 through 15, the context of the earlier part of this chapter is the contrast between pride and humility. And James sets out earlier in the chapter these ideas. In verse 6, James says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. In verse 7, he says, submit yourselves then to God. In verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So James is saying, guard against pride and pursue humility. Second thing that I think the passage does say is that we should surrender our plans to the sovereign will of God. Look again at verse 14. In verse 14, James says, what are you? What is your life? He says, it's only a vapor. It's only a mist assuming it is guaranteed to to vanish, to pass away. Now, how do we respond to to language like this? This idea that that you and I are just a vapor or a mist. Are we supposed to live in fear that life will come along and sweep us away, that we'll be guaranteed to vanish, we'll be be gone in a moment, and then um, be afraid of that moment? I, I don't believe so. I believe that, that God means for the true perspective 
about who he is and about who we are to be part of our everyday lives. Day in and day out, God desires for us to live with the truth about who he is reflected in our day-to-day lives. For example, let's say that you plan to take a vacation in Colorado this coming summer. That's your plan. The passage doesn't say, don't make those plans. Don't be afraid to, to pursue that plan. I believe it says, just make those plans, take that trip, but do so with the understanding that it's only God who gives the sun to shine, who gives us air to breathe, who gives us each day between now and then. If one person heads into the new year confident in human plans for success, and another person heads into the new year content in the sovereign will of God, they could certainly appear to be the same individual, the same person from the outside. But I believe there's a subtle shift in attitude, a slight change to how we proceed in life when we live out the truth of what Proverbs 16.9 says, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, in review, God governs our new year. Guard against pride and accomplishment and surrender to God's will. Now, that's for our optimists, for those who are um, excited, looking forward to a new year. What about those of us who look to the new year and are carrying a, a burden of distress? For those in distress, we have great reason to hope in the new year. I haven't uh, sat down to count the number of my friends facing serious disease in 2020, but I know that the list seems like it's too long. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. When it comes to those who are going into the new year facing deep distress, I would desire to err on the side of saying too little rather than saying too much. But I believe I can say three things with confidence, not because they're easy to believe, but because they're true. And here are those three. God's sovereignty is complete. His wisdom is infinite, and his love is perfect. Listen for those ideas as I read Psalm 118 for us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, 17 through 21, and 26 through 29. Psalm 118, starting with verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Bump down to verses 17 through 21. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verses 26 through 29. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastial sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Looking at the new year, I believe that we can hope in the love of God. God graciously reveals to us reasons to love him. In verse 1 and in verse 29, in the beginning and in the end of Psalm 118, the text says, Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. If we were to to look at this in Hebrew, it says, Give thanks to Yahweh. His hesed endures forever. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Garen was describing that Yahweh is this holy, sacred, unspoken, personal name of God. And hesed, I don't say it. We should have someone who's Jewish. It has this guttural kind of aspect to it. But in my Gentile mouth, it's hesed. Hesed is this covenantal, loyal, unchanging love. I bring this to our attention because I believe it matters in times of struggle to remember that God is personal. He has made himself known to us. He's revealed himself to us. If I told you that I have the wife, the wife lives upstairs in the attic of my home. I try not to disturb her. I try not to anger her. So I leave her the wife, alone in the attic of my home. When I need to communicate, I might send her a text message so that it's clear and short and brief. I know that the wife loves me, and I wonder how you would think about the nature of of that relationship as I describe it to you. You probably should say, Jason, are you off of your rocker? That sounds a little bit odd because it is. I would exchange that false story for this reality. I don't have a a wife, I have a bride. Her name is Lisa, her favorite color is green, she dances in the kitchen, she reads memoirs, she sings along to Johnny Cash, and I know that she loves me because she's chosen to reveal herself to me. She's chosen to reveal the depth of her soul to me. God loves us, and he has made himself known to us in peculiar, specific ways. He has revealed himself to us and said, I am Yahweh. I am the one who loves you. Now, God's love, we have to understand if we're to hope in it, God's love is based on his character. God's love, his hesed for us is not about our circumstances, but we are hardwired to think otherwise. We are are wired up to think that if God loves us, our life circumstances will turn out according to our expectations. But God 
His love for us is not based on circumstances, but upon his character. He has demonstrated his loving character generation after generation, and he loves us. Second thing that we can hope in is the wisdom and sovereignty of God. I'll combine these together. We might ask, if God loves us in the way that I've described here, why do the painful circumstances persist? Why do many of us move into a new year in distress if God truly loves us? Well, it's a good thing that you don't have to rely on my wisdom to provide you a complete and satisfying answer to that question, because I can't provide you with an answer to that question. Um, Garen's office hours are Monday from 9 to noon. I don't know. I just made that up. Garen can't provide you as your pastor with a, a complete and satisfying answer as to why life's circumstances don't always match up with what they, we would expect from a, a loving God. Our wisdom is so very limited, but his is not. The praises that are found in Psalm 118, in verse 26, those praises were the same ones that were exclaimed about Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem to take the Passover in the upper room. Maybe you remember it. We sometimes will, will sing or proclaim these words on, on Palm Sunday as we approach Easter. We will proclaim these words, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, proclaimed about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As the disciples and Jesus made their way to the, the upper room to have the Passover feast together, they very likely sang and proclaimed this psalm in, in worship together. They likely proclaimed Psalm 118 and, and worshiped with Jesus singing these words. I'm sure that it made sense in the circumstances of the lives of the disciples in human wisdom to praise Jesus, their leader. It made sense to sing Psalm 118 and worship together. But it couldn't have made sense a few hours after that to watch as Jesus would be arrested, executed, and placed in a borrowed grave. Now we can look back on those events a few thousand years later and recognize that terrible event, that's the only way for humanity to be delivered from eternal death was through those terrible circumstances that the disciples did not understand. The perfect wisdom of God does not need to make sense to imperfect humanity for it to still be wise and good and sovereign. As I've tried to, to live this out and, and grapple with some of these difficult ideas, uh, I want to adapt one of my favorite prayers found in Scripture. There is a, a father with a demon-possessed man in the Gospel of Mark. And the father says to Jesus in Mark 9, verses 22 through 24, the father says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says back to him, if I can do anything, like wh why the question? He says, all things are possible 
for one who believes. And then the, the father immediately follows up with this cry, one of my favorite prayers. It's a really complicated prayer. The father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I would want to adapt that as a prayer for us this morning and pray it this way. I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I believe that your will is sovereign. Help my unbelief. I believe that your wisdom is infinite. Help my unbelief. I believe that your love is perfect. Help my unbelief. Let me pray that for us to close. Father, God, I pray that wherever we are at this morning, if we are optimistic and hopeful in our own plans, Father, I pray that you would guide and direct us to set aside our plans and to take up a hope in your will and your care and not in our ability. Father, if we are in distress as we head towards a, a new year, Father, I pray that you would teach us how to place our hope in who you are. Teach us how to, to place our belief in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, and in your love. Father, I pray that this morning, if there are, are people here this morning who, who really don't even know you, they don't know you well enough to have any hope for eternity. Father, I pray that you would turn their hearts to a place of openness, uh, a place of, of, of moved by a hope that we can place in you, not just for 2020, but forever. Father, I pray that you would do your work through your spirit, through your word in our lives as we consider these things. Amen. If you have questions about this, if you desire to know more about how Jesus can be the Lord of your life. I'll be up front to, to share, to talk, and to, just to pray with you. You are dismissed. <laughs>